Recently, newspapers and magazines everywhere carried an amazing story. Reporters saw Dr. Manley Hall hypnotize actor Lugosi to give reality to a scene in Black Friday. Horror-struck, they witnessed the hypnotized actor's mortal agony as Lugosi actually experienced the terror of suffocating to death in a closet. Let me out, please! I'm suffocating! The sinister hand of science dares a new and dangerous experiment. Into the body of a gentle scholar is grafted the brain of a criminal, and a new and deadly monster is born to ravage an unsuspecting world. Big shot. Yeah, fix it up, will you? How'd you get it? The coppers shot me. It's only a scratch. How'd you get it? Well, don't ride me. It's your fault anyway. Fine. Yeah. We'll take the bucks. Go ahead and shoot. You want to dive 200 feet for it? Keep him covered. Welcome to episode 69 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight we are back with another episode of our look at the universal horror films of the 1940s. Uh, We're still in the year 1940, actually. Things are still black and white. Uh, Well, they're going to stay that way. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) We're not going to advance into color film. I mean, what... Are you crazy? Well, okay, you're right. All of that right. kind of money, color film money, was going to to, to the war effort, my friend. That's, yes, <laughs> come on, we had we had to we had to compete with the wily Japanese. Yeah, that's as right. Floyd that's right. Say. They were starting to already color their films together. Those no, actually, bastards. Right. <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen any of that color footage that was shot uh, during some of the battles of World War II? I'm not. Uh, yeah, there were, there's some. It's it's uh-huh. not. I, there's not a lot, but I mean, I think there is yeah. enough. There was enough shot by the uh, Army Corps. Uh, uh, oh, now I can't remember what they were called, but mm. uh, the, there was a there was a an army group that mm. you know actually just shot film mm. footage of different things, mm-hmm. and uh, there was some done in color. There was enough actually to put together about an hour long documentary about it, if I remember correctly. Wow. Which wow. means there probably wasn't a full hour of the footage, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. know enough that there was some of it. So, mm. um, but boy, that's a tangent. No, <laughs> <laughs> Troy and I tonight will be talking about Black Friday. From 1940, it'll take us a little while to get out of the year of 1940 at this pace. So. Yeah, they were they were they were dropping them uh, dropping them monthly. I think you know they, they, during they that time were dropping like, them hot. Yeah, they were they were. Uh, and of course, the reason that we were really excited to do this one is that it is uh, a Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi joint. Yeah. Uh, the the last Universal film that the two of them starred in together, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit of a sad thing because yes. it is uh, it being the last. There's kind of a reason it's the last. It wasn't particularly successful and we'll get into the reasons why that's true uh in our our discussion of the film um i think we even kind of debated heavily we we were wrong i think yeah we debated amongst ourselves whether or not we should even cover this as a universal horror film and that was an incorrect 
that was that was an incorrect mm. way to look at this movie. I mm. have to admit. Mm. Yeah, because it is a it has enough of a mad scientist uh, sort of uh, slant to it. Uh, there, yeah. that science fictiony kind of slant in there that it, it, it still qualifies. Oh, it definitely qualifies. I I, I got to admit. I think I've only ever seen Black Friday once or twice before. Yeah, it's not one I've watched heavily before, prior to now. And be, because if it it does feel like such a disappointment in so many ways, mm-hmm. um, that going back to it was a shock because my memory of it was that it was I'd forgotten about the the science fictional elements of yeah, it. I'd forgotten yeah. about the kind of horror film elements of the story, mm-hmm. and it was a bit of a shock to settle in and realize, oh hell, this is a damn mad scientist story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how did I edit that out of my head? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't understand it. Mm. But now I'm glad that we we kind of fought against our Maybe, initial yeah. our initial impulse. Maybe it's just because Bella Gosi made such a, a, a convincing Brooklyn thug in the film that you <laughs> uh, you just you just in your mind you just were so convinced it was a gangster film you just forgot all the other elements. Of uh, it yeah, there. that could be. It could also be the two or three completely flubbed lines of dialogue that yeah. that that Lugosi just sailed right mm. on, sails right on by. Mm. But uh, the rather odd nature of this film is. Uh, it's wrapped up in uh, it's a the strange, casting. It's a strange bird. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, written by Kurt Siadamak, mm-hmm. who uh, also uh, had a hand in the previous film we talked about. The we'll be hearing his name Man a lot. Returns. I think on this series, I believe. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when all said done, we may find him to be one of the most important people to forties. You know, for to two forties horror. You know, uh, I think and, you're right. I mean, yeah. we all we already know. We can already mm-hmm. anticipate the the knowledge we already have about his mm-hmm. contributions to the Wolfman. Yeah, and the entire legend of you know the wolf man that that goes along with that is pretty much a, a product of his imagination so this is going to be uh yeah you, you're right this thread of, of podcast may turn into a kind of mini mm-hmm. uh worship of kurt siadmak so yeah. maybe that's uh maybe that's a good thing because yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of good things there but i will say this film in particular started uh this is the first inclination or the first indication i should say that uh kurt siadmak had um a really strong idea involving uh, yeah, you'd think. The, the piecing together of separate human brains in one skull to see what might happen. Yeah, what might make you say that? <laughs> well, that uh, it's, it's it's of course the plot of this film. Yes, and then it's the plot of a couple of other films he wrote, mm-hmm. and then it's the plot of his most famous piece of fiction, mm-hmm. Donovan's Brain. Yeah, which came out, I think, two years after this, I believe. So, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's, it's basically a theme that he played with more than once, mm-hmm. and uh, to, to give credit where credit's due, it's a good idea, mm-hmm. and it's such a good idea that uh, it was used by other uh, other filmmakers, okay, other yeah. writers. Yeah. Uh, the Monster and the Ape, I think, mm-hmm. kind of ripped it off a little later, mm-hmm. you know, just pretty, mm-hmm. pretty recently. Mm-hmm. To this film uh, and and several other films, uh, the 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 uh, what's the Phantom the Phantom Speaks I think mm-hmm. kind of did a, a version of this and and one would anyway the whole idea of kind of uh, either transplanting an entire brain or like taking out a damaged chunk of brain and slapping somebody else's brain mm-hmm. in there just to, you know to see what happens. And yeah, well, anytime you get into this kind of story, not only did you kind of inevitably draw a line back to Frankenstein, but then also. You draw a line back to the you know the other type of plot that's used over and over again in many films of just the idea of somebody ending up with someone else's body part you know uh, yeah sometimes it's done in a comical manner and even down to very rude body parts you know and spooks <laughs> and stuff but but a lot often it'd be someone's hands or someone's yeah. heart brain of a killer that kind of thing oh so you're even which, thinking about something along the lines of mad love exactly or the, yeah. the, or the yeah. hands of Orlock yeah, which think, that's a version mm-hmm, of so yeah right and and that's always I've always found that the um, 
the best way to read like Mad Love or, or the Hands of Orlock and stories like that where someone gets a, a, a part of their body, you know, uh, replaced or trans, you know, transplanted mm-hmm. from someone else, mm-hmm. and then uh, that body part begins to take over control. Something about the the body part, uh, hand or mm-hmm. eyes or whatever it may be, somehow uh, influences the person that's been trans transplanted into to take on aspects of the personality of the person from which mm-hmm. those body parts came. I've always found the the basic idea of that to be completely ridiculous, except as a psychological problem for the person who's who it's happening to. In other words, it can't really be happening, mm-hmm. except that it is happening because this person feels so alienated or strange or mm-hmm. the, 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 the fact that his own hands have been taken mm-hmm. away from him and he has someone else's hands mm-hmm. is affecting him mentally in some horrible way. And he, of course his imagination takes over. That's how I always read those kind of things. And uh, in some cases films play that out in that way. So yeah. that by the end of it, you realize that this person was imagining all this, but some of those films, you know, where, where somehow we're supposed to expect, we're supposed to go along with the idea of, no, 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 no. Just having someone's hands will make you like them. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, or how about uh, more close to the episode we're doing tonight? Just having someone else's brain can change your hair color and the style of it. You know? <laughs> or, and, and actually, I will, and your I will say, and your... the, the, yeah, the accent, well, the personality I can see. Yeah. The personality yeah, is yeah, the thing that yeah. where, where I'm, willing, yeah, to, yeah. I'm oh, willing to play fudge along with me on the, on the whole fiction right, end of things. Right. That's fine. But the, uh, the, the hair color, that's a bit odd. Yeah. But what's even stranger and I can almost buy it if they played around with it in the dialogue just a little bit, is that it fixes his eyesight. Uh, yeah. yeah. The fact that it fixes his eyesight, I found really right. intriguing. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, what's even more interesting is the, I think the performance from the actor who plays the dual role of the gangster and the English the English literature professor, uh, I think the actor's fantastic. He is. And he I is. think that he's helped immeasurably by the, the makeup that mm-hmm. uh, allows him to uh, essentially play two different roles. But he kind of plays three different roles in a weird way because he also is in heavy makeup playing the gangster right before he gets killed. He's the mm-hmm. same actor yeah. playing the gangster in the car accident, yeah. which, I, which I think is very cool in a way that... Mm-hmm. A way that it's, it's a smart filmmaking technique. It is. I think, though, it, it kind of adds a little bit to the overall maybe disappointment of this film because the fact that his performance is so good and yet anyone going to see this film maybe you know then to some point but certainly now is not that's not who they're looking for and and you know that's that's and and certainly wasn't billed to be his film and and so i think that a lot of ways his work uh is probably a little underappreciated because of the other feelings you have towards this film about the way it kind of doesn't utilize its Two biggest drawing, drawing. Yeah, I mean that's drawing names or drawing star star power that it has. What's going to draw people to see this film mm-hmm. is that it's a, a film. It's a film that stars Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Um, this film is even it made its way to DVD as part of the Bela Lugosi collection. Right. The actor in the film, the name actor in the film, with the least amount of screen time. Yeah. Which yeah. is just uh, it's 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 a bit insulting. I mean, I could see yeah. honestly, it would be more accurate to call it a, a Boris Karloff film because at least sure. Karloff is a mover and shaker yes. within the yeah. plot. He is, but um, Stanley Ridges does an awesome job in the film. He's great. Plot, yeah, he's yeah. really really good. Um, but at any rate, what we're going to do, folks, 
is uh, we're going to take a quick break. Have we even said the name of this film yet in so far? Yeah, I said Black, oh, I you, said you did. Okay, okay. I just to be sure. Okay, all right. I <laughs> wasn't uh, sure. We I just, just like, launch right into things. <laughs> <laughs> hope, you, hope you read the show notes, folks. <laughs> oh, good lord, that would be that would be terrible, funny, but still terrible. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then when Troy and I come back, we're gonna we're gonna uh, go pretty quickly through the rather excellent uh, uh, plot outline for this film that was done in the fantastic reference book Universal Horrors, and that will allow us to comment on the film as we go through it, and. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, this is one that I'm glad I revisited. Yeah. Uh, I, I was kind of dreading it. <laughs> Back in a moment, folks. The ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s with teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit bmoviecookbook.com. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Black Friday, 1940. Um... Originally going to be titled Friday the Thirteenth, yeah. And I do love that under the title credits, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, that is the you know they show a calendar with that date, Friday the Thirteenth, mm-hmm. and I think that's great because that is uh, that is apparently the date on which the opening accident happens, mm-hmm. and so that was kind of the jumping off point for the idea of naming the film that. Uh, how different might film history be? If they'd retained the title Friday the Thirteenth, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, uh, that might have that might have that, that that would be interesting when you get mm-hmm. down to around 1979. They're trying to dope out what we're going to call a, a particular mm-hmm. other film. Yeah, so yeah, very true. Uh, All righty, Doctor Ernest Sovak, played by Boris Karloff, sentenced to die in the electric chair, walks the last mile, pausing to hand his medical diary to one of the reporters who has come to witness the execution. Sovak is led away as the reporter thumbs through the journal. And I like the way he says to the reporter that he is giving this to him because his newspaper had been fair to him during his uh, entire trial. Mm -hmm. 
We then get flashbacks that take us to Newcastle, a small town in the sticks, according to the dialogue, where George Kingsley, played by Stanley Ridges, is a professor at that local university and is preparing to take the train east to uh, uh, possibly uh, have take another job at a larger uh, college or university, I should say. Driving Kingsley to the de- to the to the train depot is his friend Sovac. That's Karloff, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. accompanied by mm-hmm. his daughter Jean. That's Sovac's daughter Jean, played by Anne Gwynn. Mm-hmm. Kingsley is just stepping out of the car when the sound of gunfire is heard and two cars appear from around a bend in the road. Gangster Red Cannon, who is also played by Stanley Ridge in makeup, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, driving one of the cars is embroiled in a high-speed gun battle with the occupants of the second car. Cannon's car runs down Kingsley and crashes while the other car, occupied by rival gangsters Murnay, Miller, and Kane and DeVore, make its getaway. Now, Murnay is played by Bella Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where he gets his first line of dialogue, which is actually pretty which is, good. I was going to say, it's my favorite line in the film. You know, Is it really? Yeah, I just think it's a great line. And the way he delivers it is great. It's a red cannon now belongs to the history of crime. <laughs> it's just a great line. Pa- well, past, past tense. tense. Past tense. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, that's a great line. And it is a great line, you're right. I don't feel like most of Lugosi's dialogue was written... No. Knowing that he was going to be cast in the role, but that particular line is one that he he has he does he delivers very well. It and, and it does kind of feel like the only line of dialogue that may have been rewritten for him yeah, because it, he's in the he's in the yes, role now. Because everything else just sounds like thug speak or to, you know yeah. you know gangster speak, but not that. That sounds like a Lugosi line there. <laughs> and I would have to say, looking at this film, since that is Lugosi's first line in the film, mm-hmm. I almost expected my because my memory was so faulty about this film in the first mm-hmm. place. I also almost expected that. All of his dialogue might carry that kind of edge, yeah, and it just mm. and it just doesn't. Right, right. There, he has another line that he unfortunately kind of flubs uh, later on, uh, but then he has a that, that's that's kind of funny. He, he later on has a line that I actually enjoy, which is you know he's he's informed that uh, Red Cannon's uh, Red Cannon was just was just there, and he goes, "What did he pull up in a hearse?" Yeah, <laughs> which is a great line it, of dialogue, yeah. but it's also like typical yeah. gangster speak, yeah, so yeah. it doesn't really. It doesn't exactly. really feel. I mean, he. Did, I, I like his delivery on it, but it's. Yeah. Mm. It's not like this line. It feels more yeah. like a gangster speak. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Professor Kingsley suffers head injuries. And oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm I did want to say too that in the that I I ran that that when the tr- car hits the stunt man. Oh, I know. I mean, it really looks like it. Run, it like it like hits it him. In fact, I ran that scene back a few times, and and yeah. I was like came away convinced. It really looks like that car actually. Hits he, that guy. <laughs> it's 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 a pretty impressive shot, and it's it's. I don't know. I don't know. I would love to know if they faked it, and he did because if they faked it in some clever way. I yeah. mean, we are you know the camera is far enough back from it that maybe they could have. Yeah. But it really looks like an actual impact. Yeah, it does. So I yeah <laughs> yeah. I hope he was okay. That's <laughs> that's for sure. So poor nameless stunt man. That <laughs> no, I know we have. Yeah. Surely somebody somewhere knows, but yeah. I, I I don't have a clue. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Good job yeah. there. Uh, Kingsley suffers head injuries and slips into a coma. Cannon sustains a broken spine. Uh, now, in the hospital, uh, 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 Sovak, Karloff's character, is left alone with the two men uh, for many hours, and so he secretly performs an illegal operation, transplanting mm-hmm. part of Cannon's brain mm-hmm. into the crushed cranium of his dying friend. Cannon dies while Kingsley rallies. So... That's right, folks. Although from the dialogue, this is this okay. This is the thing. Now, this is where we get into—I um, won't call it hair splitting, maybe brain splitting. 
Yeah. Uh, this, this is where I get into that thing with uh, this type of film, where the dialogue, for whatever reason, isn't being clear enough about what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And in some cases with older films, it is because there are certain things that, they've, oh, that yeah. they couldn't give voice to. They couldn't actually right. use certain words or phrases. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of pussyfooting around exactly mm-hmm. what they're talking about. So, if you just listen to the dialogue and take it literally within the film... What it feels like is that for some damn reason, Karloff's character is popping his friend's brain completely out of his skull, tossing it in a dumpster, (laughs) and popping the gangster's brain out and putting that in his buddy's head and expecting to have his buddy walking around because the the, the, like physical form is still like ninety percent his buddy. Yeah. Well, but it ain't. That's yeah. not. That's that's the. That's what we figure yeah. out, is, and that's what they should have been much I more know. specific yeah. about. Which is no, 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 no. It's not the whole brain. He's kind of wedged the two brains together. Part of, well, whatever the damaged part of Kingsley's brain is, he mm-hmm. removed and replaced with a chunk of the gangster's brain. And a little bit of exposition has told us that this is his area of specialty, and that he's been shunned by or you know mocked by the the you know yeah. scientific community you know for uh, for for his uh well, he's a, he's and a, his, a, his theories yeah he's a he's a european immigrant yeah and uh, he's not legally allowed to do surgery mm. in the states yet for whatever reason i don't know mm. you know i don't know what they don't mm. they don't regale us with the details of the circumstances of exactly why he's not mm. considered uh you know a surgical doctor within the united states yet and there's kind of a hint from he and his daughter that um Considering it's 1940, that they may have been fleeing Europe because of the on, you know the sure. oncoming war. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, almost as if they were they were refugees to a certain degree. Which I can certainly see as being something that Saldemac would have worked into a you know would have worked into a story. You know, oh yeah. That, that element there. Now considering <laughs> considering yeah. that was yeah. that was his story. Right. So, yes. so yeah, and this is an early setup for what will be the conflict of Karloff's character throughout the whole film. Is this he's. He's in one hand, you know, get the impression that he is genuinely fond of this man, of his friend, and that he's not a bad guy. At the same time, he's got sort of a something to prove too. You know, he's he's, and he certainly wants to be able to prove his theories, and 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 so here's a kind of an opportunity to sort of you know I can be altruistic and save my friend's life, but I can also kind of (laughs) like see I can see what I can do, you know, kind of things, you know. Here, see how awesome I am. Yeah. But he he does do this. He he transplants part of Cannon's brain into his buddy. Now, um, he does this. I'm kind of amazed that he's able to do this with no help. Yeah, yeah. Because no, no one else no can know about this. Yeah, no much back assistance. I I hadn't thought about that. But yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but but yeah. So he he does this and ends up with a dead thug body. Mm-hmm. And a live professor of literature body mm-hmm. with part of the gangster's brain inside. Now, uh, soon after this, Sovak learns from newspapers that uh, our gangster, Cannon, had hidden half a million dollars in stolen cash shortly before his death. And at this point, he realizes that if he can somehow get the red cannon part of the brain, that mm-hmm. personality, and that information out of his buddy Kingsley, then he could find this hidden half a million dollars and he'd be able to fund a clinic of his own, yeah. be a doctor in his own right in the United States, mm-hmm. do just all kinds of altruistic things with it. At, at first, the, the impulse is to get his hands on that money right. and use it for good. I find it interesting that if you just stop for one, mm-hmm. one quick second, 
Mm-hmm. His his idea was not to find out where this half million dollars is so that it can be given back to whoever it was stolen from. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. That wasn't what, that's not where his brain went. <laughs> no. His brain went I could be rich. I could do what I want to do. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, and, and, and do my great experiments that will benefit all mankind, you know. Now, of course, Troy, you and I both know yeah. that if given the opportunity to suddenly have half a million dollars, we would, of course, you know, fund a charity. I was going to say fund brain experiments, but, you know, but, 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 the, but charities work. Charities, well, yes, we yes, would. Yes, the, the charity totally... would be Rodney Barnett mm. and his desire to own shit. That would be, <laughs> yeah. I would want stuff, uh-huh. and that would be the name of the charity, and I would even set up a jar at the local convenience mart just mm. to get more money if mm. I could. So Mine would probably be, I'm going to fund the re- recording and releasing of an album every week that nobody will <laughs> listen to, you know? <laughs> you know, nobody wants to hear, but I will just do, I will release an album a week, you know. Here's here's my, my yeah. four sided LP yeah. of guitar doodlings yeah. whilst I yodel. Yeah. Guaranteed, guaranteed every song exactly. recorded while I'm nude. Yeah. God. Talk about talk about money losing proposition. Exactly. We, we've got all we've we got do. All, we've got all kinds we of We can schemes. leak it. If you need your schemes. money leaked, if you need your money <laughs> You got a spare half million laying around. Yeah. Let us in on it. Yeah. We've got ideas. <laughs> possible way to save George Kingsley's life is by a brain transplantation, an operation I performed successfully on animals. This is a dangerous and illegal operation, but a chance to make a great scientific discovery and perhaps save my friend's life. Okay, so Sovak becomes obsessed with the idea of reactivating the cannon part of the brain. Mm-hmm to get that personality to come to the fore and locate that half a million dollars so he can have it. Mm. Uh, Sovak invites Kingsley to accompany him on a trip to New York City. He tells the unsuspecting scholar that the trip will hasten his recovery, while in reality he hopes that a visit to Cannon's old stomping grounds will rouse the dormant Cannon brain. Now this is when you begin Mm. to uh, have your doubts about the Karloff character and think, you know... Mm. I wonder if he's evil. Yeah. Hmm. Or just a little deranged. Well, he's, he's, he's maybe. But my guy, okay, yeah, look, yeah, let, let's, yeah. Let's, 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 let's be upfront about something. This is, this is really kind of secondary to my enjoyment of the film, but um, Karloff is the dapperest mofo what Dunn oh. ever walked around mm. in oh. a, a universal oh. horror film. Yeah, he's, he looks so, I mean, I don't know how much money they spent. The, the, yeah. the budget for this film was like $130,000. Mm-hmm. And I think like a cool ten grand of that was just like clothes for Karloff. Clothes for Karloff, yeah. <laughs> just, I know, he's just making great use of those cigarettes, too. He smokes like a chimney throughout the film, and he truly makes good... He's, he's, if, if only the shots of him smoking during surgery, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. If that were true, that would be awesome. Uh, you got to smoke at least a pack while you're switching yeah, brains from skull right. to skull. And... <laughs> no, you're right. He is, he is a debonair dude in this. He, he really, really is. is. Well, Sovak and Kingsley check into the Manhattan Hotel where Cannon hid out for weeks from the from the police before his untimely death. Uh, that night, the scheming Sovak takes Kingsley to the Club Royale, where Cannon's old sweetheart, Sonny Rogers, played by Ann Nagel, is a singer. Now, uh, when Kane, one of Cannon's killers, one of the gangsters that was in the car that ran him over and killed mm-hmm. him, passes near their table, 
Kingsley spots him and instantly develops a blinding headache. Sovak rushes him back to the hotel where, as Kingsley sleeps, Sovak taunts him with Cannon's name. That's kind of creepy. This is where you're definitely in the, yeah, uh, yeah you're really wanting this money pretty badly. Phase. Yeah, yeah, it's where you're, the uh, ethics are getting uh, a little, uh, a <laughs> yeah, little, a little blur. Yeah, exactly. The Hippocratic Oath is uh, getting it's rewritten gone. just a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, we also should say that we have had a little bit of, well, a lot of foreshadowing earlier in the film as we become, we are tipped off pretty early that sirens drive Red Cannon nuts. You know, like yeah, siren, yeah. you can't stand the sound of sirens. Drives him crazy. It's like, that's not going to play at all into the plot later, folks. Not at all. Nope, nope, nope. Just you don't, throw that out of your memory there. Nope, totally. nope. P- pretend we didn't even mention it. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kingsley lies on the bed, rides in agony, as the music rises and images of Cannon's killers dance in his aching head. Mm. When Kingsley raises his, raises his noggin off the pillow, we see that his face has taken on a slightly different look. The Cannon brain has been awakened. Mm. There should be like a musical sting. I should insert a musical sting there. Oh, any of them from this movie. It's full of the old melodrama. <laughs> this is yeah, yeah. This has got some yeah. melodramatic music in it. This film. <laughs> I do. I do. I do enjoy that. It's one of the things oh, I too, love about mo- movies from this period. Is there's a certain sound to them, not just mm-hmm. in the music, but also in the sound design. Yeah. That I think is just part and parcel of how they recorded on sets at the time. But mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just love it. It's this. Uh, there's there's there, there's a there's a definite sound to it, mm-hmm. and uh, even the. Um, even when we're in those big nightclubs with with someone performing a, a song and actually performing it, there's just a there's a certain tinge, there's a certain sound to everything that just I mean it feels feels wonderful. There's a sense of nostalgia that gets wrapped up in my, in my viewing of these films. It's, of course, it's the weirdest kind of nostalgia. It's a st- nostalgia mm-hmm. for a place I've never been, <laughs> a time I never lived in. But still, it's just something that's part of these films yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, Sovak explains to the. Uh, to the uh, newly awakened Cannon, what the situation is, and uh, Cannon catches on pretty freaking quickly. Uh, at first, he thinks that he that the doc is a plastic surgeon. That's yeah. what he thinks has happened is that yeah. he's he's been so physically altered it's plastic surgery. And um, he explain he explains to him, no, let me let me tell you exactly mm-hmm. what went down and how mm-hmm. this is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, he absorbs it pretty quickly. And then behind Sovak's back, uh, <laughs> Cannon uh, you know puts on his hat and uh, leaves the hotel mm-hmm. on his own. Mm-hmm. In a montage-style series of nighttime shots, we see Cannon at large in Manhattan stealing into a vacant building where he throttles Louis DeVore, one of the uh, the gangsters that responsible for killing him. Mm-hmm. Now, by morning, Kingsley is himself again and wakes up in his bed there in the hotel with no memory of his previous night's dirty work. The next night, however, the sound of a siren triggers a second transformation. Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Cannon catches up with Kane, one of the other gangsters, and strangles him, then pays a visit to Sonny Rogers. Sonny is initially angry with this stranger who claims to be Cannon, but as he moves very confidently around her apartment, opening secret panels that only Cannon knew about, the girl is dumbfounded, and eventually, whether she believes him or not, just kind of goes along. Mm Uh, now this is the part of the film where I think it's a little and there, there, you have to you have to read into it you have to to understand yeah. what you're seeing here because it's yeah. a 1940 film mm-hmm. this is definitely post code oh yeah so there are things that they're going to be able to uh, to kind of hint at without mm-hmm. stating outright mm-hmm. but it's pretty clear that the newly awakened canon in Kingsley's body. Mm-hmm. Has sex with this yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the implication of this sequence. Mm-hmm. 
but the fact that he's in the body of a married man that had to be, had to be very careful how they played with the code and that you know had to yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. so we do the nice little fade out on the uh, kiss kiss there and all but uh but it's it, the implication is is obvious yeah I mean, you know so these <laughs> this is this is some pretty interesting shit man mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm, kind of impressed mm-hmm. by this idea <laughs> um, but I I, I wonder <clears throat> see I was probably in my how old were you when you first saw this film oh boy um. I think I probably saw it in. I mean, I was probably in my twenties, you know, okay, late twenties yeah. when I saw it. You know, cause I, I think maybe one of those first times that it was a uh, you could get it on on video because um, uh, I believe they because it wasn't common. You didn't run across no, it. No, no, I don't remember seeing it on TV. Although I, it's possible they may have shown it on on one of the you know the film packages. Uh, possibly it may may have made the rounds of some of the late night television. Uh, mm, but maybe. I think that I saw it. Because it was part of, I believe, of that Universal, those video, uh, when they uh, did that great series of, of uh, video releases of Universal films. Oh, no, no, no. The great it, painted. It, I think it that, was That's one. where I first saw it, was on that VHS release. Uh, uh, yeah. And, late and, 80s, early 90s? Yeah, so that's kind of why, so that's sort of what I'm thinking is where, where I may have first seen it was, yeah. was possibly on in, in that series. Yeah, I was definitely in my 20s when I saw mm-hmm. it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't paying close enough attention to realize that what that basically that's another that I, I don't think i got the idea that's implied here that you know he kind of mm-hmm. you know that as far as this woman's concerned this is a complete stranger who mm-hmm. yeah he certainly knows a whole lot that would mm-hmm. indicate that he might he's be very, like a plastic surgery changed yeah. red gannon but at the same can't i mean red cannon but at the same time mm-hmm. um he he goes from uh yeah it's me here i'll prove it now get your clothes off, essentially, <laughs> yeah. within the space of about you know five to seven yeah. minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's some pretty rough stuff. But considering you know this guy was a bit of a bastard, I mean, he is a bit of a bastard. I mean, we're talking about a, a murderous gangster thug scumbag who yeah. somehow made off a half a million dollars and yeah. secreted it away someplace. And we can go and say that, that you know, let's face it, Sonny is not exactly the girl you take home to meet meet <laughs> no. mom. She she's a, no. the kind word would be an opportunist, I think, and you know, I would be the very much term so. for uh, for for Sonny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, a woman of loose morals who and definitely goes which way the wind is, wherever way the wind is blowing. I think is where she where she heads. What was, what was it? Uh, as soon as I see a woman like this, <laughs> I think to myself, moral turpitude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Sunny, uh, she betrays this new guy, Cannon, who mm-hmm. seems to be Red Cannon, but who knows. She sets him up with. Uh, she sets him to be killed by Murnay and Miller, the two remaining thugs. Yeah, right. Uh, that would, be, of course, Murnay is uh, is the one played by Bella Lugosi. The two gangsters trail Cannon as he drives to the city reservoir and descends into the underground control room where his uh, five hundred thousand dollars is hidden in a metal box. Returning to the surface, he's confronted by the two gangsters who hold him at gunpoint and demand the money. In the brawl that ensues. Cannon chokes Miller to death while Murnay escapes with the box of cash. Cannon later catches up with Murnay at Sonny's apartment because, of course, Sonny was was playing really hard and heavy with Lugosi's character, Murnay, yeah. and appears to have been like carrying on a sexual relationship with him behind mm. Cannon's back. Mm-hmm. For a long time, and this has just been continuing to go on, and so well, and she also was apparently stringing along the guy who the other guy he killed, uh, the who gives her the the watch, you know, that then turns oh, up yeah. with you know, so yeah. so yeah, <laughs> she's she's not playing both ends against the middle, she's playing all all sides against the yeah, exactly. <laughs> against just whatever the hill comes up. So um, 
I expect her in game and all this would have been she ends up with the box of money and, oh, yeah. and, 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 and everybody and, else and, is and dead. She's gone. Dead. Yeah, I have a feeling that's. What I'm she sure that's thinking. what I'm sure that's what her plan was at one way or another. Whether whoever mm-hmm. left the country with her survived for very long or not was mm-hmm. probably probably <laughs> a good bet. So, uh, well, so we have Mernay at Sonny's apartment, uh, and uh, Cannon catches up with him there at Sonny's apartment. He's kind of hiding. And uh, Mernay seals him up in a broom closet by blocking the door with a heavy freezer. And uh, amidst the frantic cries of the suffocating Mernay, Cannon strangles Sonny to death. Now, let's talk about this sequence. Because this is is the death of the LaBella Lugosi scene, which is one of the most ignominious deaths, I think, that Lugosi ever (laughs) suffered on screen. Thank you for saying that. I was was going to say it if you didn't. (sighs) It's, it's like uh, the guy doesn't even get a good death on the screen, man. It's like, come this on. Is, this is pitiful. <laughs> well, this whole role is honestly is just... <sighs> it is, it is. And and let's... Maybe it's best to go ahead and delve into this and just yeah. talk about this before we even... Before we talk mm-hmm. a little bit more. People, uh, we do plan to kind of go through the entire plot of this film. It's a 70-minute film and it's... Uh, whew, at this mm-hmm. point, <laughs> almost 80 years old. I mean, we're talking 78 years old. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Sorry, but mm-hmm. we we will eventually finish out the plot of this. But let's let's take this moment now to talk about the casting and and the mm-hmm. oddities that are involved in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the reasons that Troy and I were a bit hesitant to cover this film, we, we were seriously thinking of skipping over and going into the, going to the next Universal horror film of 1940, mm-hmm. was that. Um, it just doesn't feel like a horror movie. And one of the things that this is a disappointment for Karloff and Lugosi fans, there, there are many of them. And the first one that you'll notice watching this film for the first time is that there is not a single shared scene yeah. with the two actors. Yeah, that would be Karl- right out. That yeah. would be top of the list right there. No Karl- interaction yeah. whatsoever. No interaction. Those characters never even meet. Mm-hmm. So it's a Karloff-Lugosi film with no Karloff-Lugosi scenes, mm-hmm. which is extremely depressing as soon as you realize it, okay? Mm -hmm. Because one of the draws of, um, say, the Raven or the Black Cat or even the Invisible Ray, Mm -hmm. uh, these are films where, especially like Son of Frankenstein, where where Lugosi plays Igor, possibly possibly his best universal role. He's phenomenal. Mm You see that, and that's that's what you're looking for. That's the juice you're looking yes. for. That's that that power know. between them that was in the Invisible Ray and that was in the Black Cat. You know yeah. that, that that great on screen presence. They both had the tensions between them. You know, there you wanted to see that, and that's not what you get here. No. There's, no. I mean, and that's a disappointment. But even further disappointing is that it doesn't take much thinking. Mm. Even before you know the background information about this movie, the behind the scenes things that went on. Before you realize, really, Lugosi should have been one of the two main characters because the two main characters, one of them is Karloff and one of them is not Lugosi. Why is that? Yeah. And when you find out, it's kind of distressing. It's mm-hmm. kind of depressing. And it, and it immediately puts you in mind of exactly what this film could have been if the original casting ideas, and that's what these are, the original casting ideas, had been carried forward. Mm-hmm. Um. Karloff was supposed to be in the plum role of the gangster canon and mm-hmm. yes. Kingsley, the literature professor. Um, Sovak, with a very foreign name, yes, someone, who just exactly. emig- someone who just, just immigrated to right. the States from Europe, mm-hmm. was supposed to be played by Lugosi. 
And at the last minute, and we're talking the mm-hmm. last minute, mm-hmm. um, this was changed. Uh, and the reason is that Karloff, at the last minute, decided that he didn't think that he was right to play the role. He didn't think he could really pull off, for whatever reason, Yeah, didn't think he could pull off, even with the Jack Pierce's makeup effects, uh, the switch from Kingsley to Cannon and back again. He didn't think that it would work. Uh, now, this has been variously described as uh, a laudable thing for about Karloff in that he um, he often doubted his own abilities, um, would often you know work himself up into a frenzy because he felt that he might have bitten off more than he could chew in a particular role. There's the famous story uh, told by Greg Mank about being... Um, Upset and like like walking you know walking all night long trying to find a way to get out of his his stage uh, debut in Arsenic and Old Lace because he just didn't think he could really do it, mm-hmm. even though he was, was going yeah. to be on yeah. he was going to be on stage doing it the next day. Yeah, and so a lot of this is attributed to the fact that their big their big star Karloff at the last minute decided I can't play this role, mm-hmm. and so instead of juggling the roles and just switching with Lugosi. It was quickly decided that, that was not that would not work. That you know, putting um, Lugosi in the role of the the gangster and the the um, English literature professor at a small college wouldn't fly. Mm. And they're right. That I was going to say, I can see that as being yeah, that, that really wouldn't fly. So that's why we get the really excellent performance from the mm-hmm. from the other actor who's yeah. not Karloff and Lugosi, right? But that meant that we now have a Karloff Lugosi film. It's been advertised to be a Karloff Lugosi film with no role for Lugosi. So they beefed up the gangster role of Murnay mm-hmm. and stuck Lugosi in it. Um, and as soon as you know that, it's impossible to see anything else. It's yeah. impossible to do anything other than, especially as a fan of these two guys. Yeah. Um, I, my feelings about, I think. At the time this film was made, um, here here's one problem I see with with the casting of them and those and those those two particular roles. Because you're right, you know, you always think like, wow, what could have been? I'd love, I'd love to have seen that. But at the same time, I feel like if the film had been, I think that that would have worked like a charm. I think it would have been excellent had it been made just a few years earlier. At the time that they made, around the time they were making the Invisible Ray, Black Cat. And the reason I'm saying that is because. By this time, Lugosi physically had begun to lose some of his imposing presence. You know, he was already starting to his his health was declining rapidly at this point, and he was already starting to. He wasn't looking. You, he wasn't looking as good as he did in the early thirties. That's true. Looking the way that they, when you look at how those two, the way those two held their own against each other on the screen with their screen presence so well in films like The Black Cat, right. Karloff, by this point, which isn't that much later, but by this point, Karloff still has it, like we talked about. He's 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 awesome. He's lean. He's debonair. He's and 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 I think in in the role of the professor and the gangster, I think you know I, I admire I admire his humility, but I think he would have been great because we had already seen him play both kindly, you know, likable character roles and and also you know villainous evil roles. Right. And I, I think that uh, the problem with Lugosi playing the part of the doctor at this point because the doctor what works with Karloff playing off of Stanley Ridges is Karloff has enough of an imposingness about himself enough of a a presence you know that you could you could believe him still being able to kind of 
back down this gangster character like he has to do in several scenes where he right. has to become the dominant one in the scene. Lugosi, I think, could have pulled that off, no question, just a few years earlier in this. And by the time we get to this film, I'm not saying his acting chops aren't still there. I'm sure they would have been had he been encouraged and called on to do them. I just don't know if physically if he could have conveyed that same kind of um, enough, enough of a menace or enough of a dominant kind of force of personality to make you believe that he's going to back down this 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 murderous you know killer yeah, this murderous yeah. thug whereas I think you can accept it with Karloff against Stanley Ridges you know against Red playing Red Cannon even, even though he's this tough thug you know Karloff is enough of a force a forceful presence just his eyes and just his the way he, his whole frame the way he carries himself I mean it's just a visual thing that I just think Legosi at this point had already started to to lose some of that uh, one of the things I noticed in, in kind of you know getting ready for the show I don't know if you looked in the, like saw some of the publicity photos for this film that they're yes, doing yes. and it almost I mean it's kind of pathetic really or kind of or just makes you kind of sad but the pictures of that a lot of the publicity photos were of Lugosi and Ann Nagel and, and they got Lugosi posing over her doing the thing with his the Dracula thing with his hands yeah. and like he's like trying she's... to mesmerize her and you know they're obviously trying to sell this as a supernatural film where Lugosi is the, you know, a kind of Dracula kind of yeah. villain. And even looking at those pictures there, I'm just, uh, it's like, yeah, just not the same as, you know, he's just, he's, he's you know, he's, he's losing some of that physical presence there. I, I agree with you. I, 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 I agree with what you're saying, but at the same time, I can't help but think that the film would work better. Mm. If the original casting was was in place, because well, we as fans would just be eating it all up, regardless, oh, yeah. because it'd be so much between. It would be so many scenes with those two. We would just yep. be drooling over. We would love it. Yeah, and and there are so many as the script as the script plays, there would have been so many different types of emotions and so much. Uh, there's so many shades of gray and light and dark that those two characters two. Mm-hmm characters play around with in those scenes and the chance to have the two of those those two guys mm-hmm. playing that stuff together mm-hmm. it, it honestly it tightens my gut and makes mm-hmm. me wish for like an alternate happened you know and so it's it's kind of it's it's missed opportunity mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. that's where I go with it mm-hmm. now a lot of people and I can't disagree with them. Want want to back up the fact that you know, Stanley Ridges is fantastic. I know, yes. and it's sad that we have to say this kind yeah. of stuff because he does such a good job. In He's the role. very, very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Karloff is very good in the role that he chose mm-hmm. to take. Yeah. But at the same time, this is a movie. This is a movie where Bela Lugosi got screwed. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. yeah. And it's. Sad that it's the last of the pictures that he and Karloff did together at Universal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the last time they appeared yeah. on screen, but their other their other screen pairings were for uh, RKO. And so what we're talking about here is kind of the whimper at the end of this mm-hmm. trail of, of classic horror films. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a missed opportunity, a, a, a fumble, a yeah. screw up. Yeah. Not that there aren't good things in it. No, no. But no, there are. it's... There's a lot. There's there are a lot of reasons why you and I kind of yeah. skipped right over this thing. Yeah, I mean, I would rather I would rather watch that the one scene they have together in Body Stature <laughs> yeah. over and over than to watch this you know this film again. You know, really goes. <laughs> I mean, and, and this is this is a good film. Body Snatcher is a classic. Oh it's yeah, a much, yeah, exactly. much better. Film yeah, no, I'm not saying this isn't a no, 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 no but, of course but not. It's just, but, but it's, the <laughs> it's 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 
it's sad as a Lugosi fan, as someone mm-hmm. who like yeah. and who who definitely. I mean, like I say. I sit here and we start talking about the Raven and the Black Cat mm-hmm. and Son of Frankenstein and the Invisible oh, yeah. Ray, and I'm just sitting here thinking, man, why don't we sit down and watch those again too? Oh, I know, God. But it, but and to to know that this film could have been like that mm-hmm. could have you know could have had that kind of fire and spark mm-hmm. because of those two actors. It's 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 distressing. Yeah. Kill you. You came back to get revenge. Red. Do you remember the name Marnie? Marnie. He's the one who took your place. Marnie Miller. Cain, Devon. Why did they try to kill you, Red? To get your money? But they didn't find it, did they? It's safe, just where you hid it. Where is it, Red? Marley. Miller. Cain. Ill, Red. I remember that that Hick Town. You're the doc, ain't you? Yes. Say, my back's better. You cured me? Yes. You're perfectly well now. Thanks, Doc. I won't forget it either. Midtown Hotel, huh? How'd I get here? You asked me to bring you. I must have been out of my head. Like every copper in town will be looking for me. I've got something to tell you, Red. Oh, yeah? What? You were smashed up in an accident, you remember? I had to operate to give you another body. You had to do what? What are you talking about? So I think we can agree that Lugosi's character's death in this film is... A low light. It is. I mean, I wasn't. I know we don't even really know that he's that he's killed him. We think he's just, until we actually get finally get. Uh, I Some think it dialogue. Was, I think there's dialogue or a news headline or something that just mentions you know oh, that, that yeah, the girl that the woman and and he and Myrna were were murdered. So apparently, after he killed her, he did go back and kill him. But well, see, that's the implication. Or, or did he a, just leave him to suffocate? Uh, whatever. But right. it, had they not even said that, I was thinking, did he just leave him there in the closet? I mean, it's like which is a really like you said, ignominious. Ignominious. It's ridiculous. Yes. Oh well, it's <laughs> it's. Uh, and just to touch on it, th- that publicity bullshit about 
Lugosi yeah. being hypnotized, so he yeah. would, he would oh, actually think that. God, so he was. Yes. He so that was that think, film that it, that did that for because I. It, this it, is the film. This yeah. is the film. Okay, see, I couldn't remember if it was. Yeah, I remember was that close. happening with the film that Lugosi was in, but I couldn't remember if if it was this one. It was, was it yeah. was pl- publicity oh, balderdash. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. was BS. Well, crap. again, just like these pictures of him with Anne Nagel, where he looks like he's like he's menacing her like in a Dracula kind of style. There. <laughs> oh Lord. <sighs> well, at any rate, um, Cannon falls asleep that night uh, during a taxi ride to the airport, and I love the fact that he gets a ta- he gets a taxi cab driver who's yeah. who he's almost a uh, basically a comic it character, is, yeah, but, he, yeah. but he but he won't shut up. Yeah. And so like Red like smacks him upside <laughs> the head and tells him, "I don't like it wasn't I don't like Gabby taxi Gabby driver." Taxi driver. <laughs> but he falls asleep in the back of the cab and he reawakens as Kingsley and just kind of doesn't know what he's doing or where he is. Mm-hmm. Asked the frustrated cab driver to take him uh, to his hotel, um, and he—I mean—he at least absentmindedly does grab the the box with the money in it. Mm. So at least that doesn't just show right. up somewhere. But he hands the the taxi driver just a whatever bill he had in hand, and even look at it. What he hands the taxi driver is a thousand dollar bill to pay for his cab ride. Yeah. Uh, Kingsley retires to his room that night and collapses into bed. Sovac finds and keeps the money. So the next morning, he wakes up as Kingsley, and Sovak's like, well, cool. Now I don't have to goad this bastard into being Ganon anymore. Mm-hmm. I've got the money, so yeah. this is all good. <laughs> so Sovak and Kingsley return to Newcastle. Um, of course, we, we've left out the fact that at one point, um, Kingsley's wife and uh, Sovak's, daughter, Sovak's yeah. daughter show up in New York because yeah. they haven't really heard fr- heard from them in a while and are worried <laughs> And uh, he acts like the most Sobac's, suspicious. He acts like the most suspicious bastard in the world. No. <laughs> but what, what kills me is that he's so he's he's very smooth. Oh, yeah, he's about very coming up yeah. with he's persuasive yeah. in the way oh, yeah. he gives gives reasons for mm-hmm. hey no, no no you two need to leave him yeah. alone and let him go through this process mm-hmm. that he's going through. Mm-hmm. This is some difficult shit. I didn't really want to bring all this up. I didn't want this to mm-hmm. be a big thing. But, you know, you really kind of need to yeah. give him this space, and seeing you would really screw things up. So, mm-hmm. nah. And what kills me is that the whole thing, I kept picturing Lugosi doing that scene, and I've seen Lugosi do similar mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. in some of his Poverty Row films where mm-hmm. he's having to be very slick. And there's even some yeah. of that stuff in uh, the, the Raven yeah, yeah, where he's being, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's having to be very suave mm-hmm. and, and smoothly lay out some line of BS to get somebody to do something or go along with something that they may or may not think is a particularly good idea. Mm-hmm. And all I could see during, I, I, kept, I kept watching and thinking, oh, I'd love to see Lugosi playing this part right here because he, he had that ability, mm-hmm. always had that yeah. ability yeah. To, 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 to do that suave, smooth thing and mm-hmm. kind of use that, that, that charm that was such an innate part of him as an actor. Yeah. And, and Karloff, don't get yeah. me wrong, Karloff does a superlative job because it's, it's, he's Karloff. He's a, yeah. he's a consummate professional and he knows what he's doing and he's great. Yeah. But I honestly did keep, keep thinking when he's like mm-hmm. slipping these women out of the hotel and getting them to go away, <laughs> that would just be an awesome sequence for yeah, Lugosi right. to play. So. Sure. <laughs> well, at any rate, Sovak and Kingsley return, return to Newcastle. Kingsley goes back to teaching, and the cannon brain seems completely dormant. Uh, Kingsley is addressing his students one day when the wail of a siren fills the air. Kingsley becomes frantic as the transformation begins, and in a nice macabre touch, he envisions the ghosts of Marnay, Miller, Kane, Devore, and Sonny rising up from between the rows of his seated students and menacingly moving closer to him. Cannon, because he's transformed now, 
bolts from the classroom and hurries to the Sovak home, bursts in and attacks Jean. Responding to his daughter's scream, Sovak appears with a gun in his hand and fires. Cannon slumps to the floor where, in death, he reverts for the last time to Kingsley. The flashbacks end at that point. We return to the death house where the reporter, who's apparently a speed reader, I might admit. Yeah, I was going to say that was some quick... Uh... <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm stealing that directly. I, I, oh, that, that. I can't, I can't take credit for that joke. Yeah. Can't take credit for that joke. That's <laughs> straight right, out of the straight yeah. out of the Universal Horrors book. So I'm not stealing. I'm not stealing that. Either that's, that, or they just held up the execution there so he could finish. Yeah, it. You, you finished yet? Okay, we're gonna. Yeah. I, need, I need like I need like an hour to read this. Hold on. Uh, well, he's just finished uh, reading uh, Sovak's diary. Uh, Sovak dies in the electric chair at the appointed hour. The tenth casualty of this seventy-minute movie. <laughs> now, I love that line <laughs> yeah, in the book. Here. Yeah. Uh, on the last page of the diary, he expresses the hope that in better hands than his, these notes can be used for the benefit of mankind. Uh, well, now, and the code slept heavily over after. Yeah, yeah. The, the code, the code let was, things fly, and everything yeah. was good. Lots of people died, and all kinds of things, all kinds of horrible things happened. But it was mostly off screen, so we're good. Yeah. Strangling seemed to be okay yeah, in the yeah, code world. We could strangle all day strangle, long, yeah. and you know the 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 bloodless mm-hmm. gunshot death mm-hmm. is okay. But mm-hmm. there's no there's nobody getting a, a shotgun blast to the skull and it evaporating. So, <laughs> or and we don't and we don't we definitely don't see Sovak you know do the electricity dance. So yeah, yeah. <sighs> so speaking of that, I uh, the electricity dance. Yes, because I. I, I like I think it's kind of neat that this film sort of has the structure of Curse of Frankenstein's maybe what what it thought, think of, you know <laughs> yeah, you began right. with the, well, you know I mean Revenge of Frankenstein or is it no the Curse the first yeah where be he, where it begins right. with him in the in the cell and 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 the, the whole first, film is a yeah. flashback and then ends with his death <clears throat> I have to say now understand that by the code standards you know Karlov's character had to pay a price you know for what he yeah. did but yeah. I don't know that I buy him being executed and here's the reason why because it seems like he, you know, Kingsley was attacking, attacking his, his daughter. daughter right. So, <clears throat> considering the reputation that the doctor, at least, I mean, <clears throat> had as far as, you know, he was a, a surgeon and, and, and very well loved by, you know, the people that, that knew him, you know, Karloff's right. character. And, and yes, his daughter was, was in on what was going on. I mean, she knew what he had done, but I, I doubt that she would. I didn't picture her as the kind of daughter who would give him give him up, you know, that kind of thing. I'm just thinking that he could have, as smooth as he was, I think he could have made a case for defending his daughter, you know, that, that say, Kingsley, something residual from his accident had driven yeah. him over the edge and he had lost his mind. Because the students had seen him lose his mind in this classroom. True, that's true. So they, he could have used that to, I'm not saying he might not have done some sort of jail time or something, but I'm just saying that I, I just couldn't really buy that he would be executed for, for, for what he did, that he couldn't have gotten out of it with a, the, the... You're the, saying the, that maybe his, maybe he was railroaded or had a shitty lawyer? Or yeah, a, yeah, yeah, or just... I'm, yeah, I think that, that maybe in this case, uh, the code demanded a little too much this time, you know? It's like it, yeah, de- it demanded... Right. You know what I'm saying? I'd not really thought about that because I guess maybe I didn't think about it because it is the framing device that, mm-hmm. we, that we know this right. character is going to be executed for, right. whatever, for whatever crimes we are now about yeah. to learn about. And the crime... Of course, the real crime he should be executed for is the... The yeah. hor- the horrendous deed of, of yeah. like you know car- carving up somebody's brain right and the fact that it did lead to all these murders you know but I just I don't see him I don't I, I don't feel that he would I feel like he would have been able to have gotten out of that like I said unless his daughter just you know totally like because she knew so unless she just totally I don't know maybe she flipped <laughs> the on the whole him, story maybe she did she's uh, certainly she's certainly not in the 
that uh, that scene there in the death house. So. That's true. So maybe 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 she has the money. Maybe she gave him up, and she's uh, a <laughs> sweet little Anne Gwen ended up being the. Uh, she ran, up, ran, she ran away with a half million dollars. <laughs> yeah, maybe it, 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 this, this this form of evil, this form of greed, runs in the runs family. In the family. It, maybe, maybe it it's does. It's genetic. <laughs> My lord, that's a, that's a, I kind of like that idea. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it is. I had not thought of that either until now. But but it's I like it too. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's cool that uh, Gregory Mank's book uh, Karloff and Lugosi: The Story of a Haunting Collaboration. Has a good deal to say about this film, and, and of course, the great thing about uh, Greg Mank's work is that he was all he was able to interview a lot of the people who uh, made this film, mm-hmm. and one of the people he talked with uh, was the director Arthur Lubin, and uh, he says he found it uh, easy to be uh, to maintain uh, the director's famous cool um, on this film, and it was mainly because of the professionalism of the of the actors. Mm-hmm. He said that uh, as far as Bella is concerned, this is this is a quote from Lubin. As far as Bella is concerned, I first met him when I got out of college in 1922. I went to New York to get a job and, be, and became assistant stage manager of a stage play called The Red Poppy. Bella at the time was a very famous star in Budapest. But when they signed him for the play, they forgot to ask him if he spoke English. Mm-hmm. So my job as assistant stage manager was to coach him as frequently as possible in his English. In three weeks, he spoke, ling- he spoke English with, of course, a Hungarian accent. So we became very close friends during those years at Universal. Karloff only lived about a mile away from where I live now, above Hollywood. He was a real gentleman. He was a scholar. He was high class. Both Bella and Boris were gentlemen. They were both fine men, and I don't remember anything unpleasant ever happening with either one of those two boys. They were just wonderful, wonderful guys to work with. Cool. Unquote. No. Nice. Which is re- yeah, which yeah. is really cool. He he's uh, Lubin. Uh, this is another quote from the book. Lubin mercifully remembers the rigors of Black Friday because it was shot in eighteen days uh, wow. on a very tight budget. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of notes that uh, Mank dug up about uh, the con- the concerns that uh, at one point they were like half a day behind mm. because they considered Lubin to be kind of lackadaisical in getting mm. the film in the can and kind of like <laughs> wow. re- really being tight fisted about making sure that the film stayed in, you know. On, t- on schedule and under budget. Um, uh, but Lubin remembers the rigors of Black Friday only in general terms, and he doesn't resent them. Quote, It was wonderful training for me to be able to, per- to, to do the picture of that budget, because when I got to the big feature pictures later, I was very sure of myself. So he looks back at least at, at that point mm-hmm. in his life, late, much later in his life once he's retired, yeah. at the whole process of making something like Black Friday, which was an 18-day shoot <laughs> on a tight schedule where literally the executives were like standing there and going, okay, you're a half day behind. Where are you going to pick wow. this up? Wow. Uh, which, And that tight schedule explains a couple of dialogue flubs that I yeah. think are... Yeah. That they didn't have time to fix. Yeah. Um, there and and I have to say the dialogue flubs really uh, do boil down to like two or three lines from Lugosi where yeah. you know he th- these kind of problems did crop up repeatedly mm-hmm. when you start talking about uh, Lugosi and the English language mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't have the money to go back and re- reshoot something of oh, the the Bella Lugosi line um, where he he says. Uh, he's been dead since three weeks. Yes, that is a that's a not clumsy. That's a that's like, not awkward no, 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 line. That's, that's, that, yeah. that's not the way that line was written. No, that's no. not. The, and it's like <laughs> so they didn't even take the time to like go back and have yeah. him redo that line of dialogue. And it's like oh, that's a that's a that's get it in a, the can. Get yeah, it in the can. Get it in yeah. the can. I guess, but it, it's 
you're either a fan of these types of films from this period or you're mm. not. They're 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 B pictures. They're uh, they're done on a budget. That's what they're all about. They're thrill rides. They're mm. short. They're sharp. And hopefully they're so entertaining that they breeze by before plot holes mm. become evident to you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean the most evident in this one we've already talked about, which is the. So did you transplant the entire brain <laughs> yeah. or a chunk of the brain? Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> right. And it, it, it's problems like that. And it's like, you know, my, my, my favorite little plot thing, which is, you did this surgery all on your own? <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Is like just, you know, that, sent, yeah. the, sent, the, sent the nurse out to get coffee and like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really quickly pop this yeah. piece of brain yeah. in here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, once again, it's, the Simpsons has infected me. I'm just picturing mm-hmm. Monty Burns draping yeah. that brain in the, yeah. the brain stem over his skull, going, "Look at me, I'm Daniel Boone." Yeah. <laughs> but, but. Well, the director Arthur Lubin actually uh, a couple of interesting things about his filmography is he made he ended up directing the first few Evan Costello films. Yes, yes. Um, and he also uh, did do the Universal, the Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera. Um, yes, which is and, yeah, and which is I love yeah, that film and it's in color. That's where my color is going to come in. Oh my god, there, you're right, I, I will, forgot. Yes, yes. If I can just hold out oh. just long enough, we'll be a wash in color when we do when we do that. I can't believe I forgot that the the nineteen forty three Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera is in color. You are correct. And he also sadly had to do some of the Francis films. I've I've always wondered. There's so many directors. Francis the Talking Mule. Yes, I've always wondered. There's so he many. He was like the main mover and shaker on those films yeah. apparently. Yeah. And I've I've never. Okay, look there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a movie fanatic. Yeah. Uh, I'm really thrilled when like t- Turner Classic Movies mm-hmm. decides, hey, we're going to run all the Torchy Blaine movies, or yeah, we're going to yeah. run all the Thin Man movies, or Bulldog whatever. Drum under whatever, yeah. whatever. But, Nancy Drew, whatever you know. Um, there, there, I, I can name three film series that were big money makers, and I've never had the I, urge to see. I any bet of I know what all three of them are going to be. But you go ahead. And okay, say. well, first of all, the Andy Hardy movies. Okay, I wouldn't have seen. I, I didn't. See I, that I don't care. Okay. Uh, Mom, Pa, Kettle. That, thank you. That was one of the ones I thought you were going <laughs> to I yeah. don't give a damn. Yeah. And Francis, the talking mm-hmm. mule. Okay, see, so what? two and three was, I thought the third one was going to be the Bowery Boys, but maybe that's just me. I just cannot Well, the thing is, it. I've seen some of the Bowery Boys movies, and mm. I've not been, so I think I kind of lucked out in that the first one I ever saw was the one that has Bogart in it, which was like the very first True. one. True, yeah. Well, uh, they, the Dead End Kids, or yeah, something with yeah. the Dead End Kids, and yeah. that's actually a pretty darn good movie. Yeah. So... I can't say that I'm against watching more Bowery Boy movies, although I know that. Well, when you made ninety of them, there's got to be, you know, there's yeah, but uh, oh my God. there's got to be a couple in there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think yeah. they, no, I think that there's probably they got probably just more and more tepid as they went along, and Who I think knows? probably I some of the know. later. But, I don't feel any urge to watch those yeah, either, but yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I. Those other, those other, ser- the three series I just named off. Yeah, I've not seen like, any of them, yeah, and yeah. I got no desire. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on the Mon Pie Kettle thing too. I just is not something I'm not into at well, all. Well, since okay, well, now let's let's approach that. Just uh, boy, yeah. talk, talk about a sidebar. Here's yeah. a total sidebar. <laughs> People, I apologize, but is it because we're both from Tennessee that we're both Southerners that the Mon Pie Kettle thing holds no interest for that us? The, that the steer Well, I don't know because I used to. Um, you know, because I used to always enjoy the Beverly Hillbillies, which is certainly as as makes as much fun of country people as the Mon Pot Kettle stuff does. But I always enjoy the I Beverly guess. Hillbillies, so I don't. Well, know it if would it's really that. kind of be the same damn thing just on serialized television, uh, wouldn't it, man? Yeah. yeah, I would. Yeah, so I don't know if that's my aversion to, uh, uh, but you know, but uh, maybe it's just the fact that maybe I just still am bitter about the fact that for a while I think if I remember right, TV was showing 
Evan Costello movies every Sunday, and then they start replacing them with Mom Pa Kettle films. Maybe I'm just still bitter over over, <laughs> over <laughs> maybe, that. Maybe it's a know. bitterness. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I, the, the, you know, there, are, uh, I, I the, all those. I'll sit and watch the worst series of mystery thrillers that mm-hmm. any studio ever produced from mm-hmm. like ni- the 1930s yeah. all the way through the 1960s. Yeah, same but, here. You know, you queue up, you yeah. queue up a long list of Andy Hardy movies, and I'm like <laughs> trying to find something else to watch. And you know, I don't know. I could watch the mm. I could watch the Thin Man movies on an endless loop and oh, be, a, those, be yeah. a happy guy. I love those films, yeah. But um, you know, something else weird, just as another aside, but it is it did occur to me as I was researching this movie and as I was watching it because this film is also we talked about the influences Frankenstein and and you know and and uh, the, the the hands of Orlock and those sort of things but yeah. it's also very much a it's really a Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde film too oh it is and, and there are two and I will argue mm-hmm. that there are two Jekyll and Hyde characters in the film oh, oh interesting yeah okay well, think about so, it we yeah, have the, we, we have, have the obvious one yeah but the character Karloff plays does undergo a change yeah. when we are introduced to him he is a kindly man we don't have there's yeah. not a there's not a single bad thing that can be said mm-hmm. about him until this is dropped in his lap he has no yeah. intentions we don't ever feel of doing anything nefarious no not at all but as soon as that money and that half million dollars gets dangled in front of him it's mm-hmm. it's as if you know Satan himself wagged his tail in his face and is suddenly mm-hmm. like, "Come on, buddy, don't you want some anus?" <laughs> it's yeah. I'm telling you, man. Yeah. There there really are two characters mm-hmm. who have a dual personality. That's a good point. And, uh, it's I, I love it because the the Karloff character and like I say, I so wish that it that I, I so wish there was a world in which we could see Lugosi play uh, that part yeah. because yeah. this is a man who to. For all the world presents to he, he the, the the outward face he presents to the world is this incredibly benign, mm. good man, um, uh, making making a stab at at, at a, a new life and a new country mm. because of mm. the, the the horrors that he's fleeing in his home country, with good intentions, but then has that opportunity that very American yeah. opportunity of mm. quick money yeah dropped in front of him as a possibility and he leaps at it like a starving man. And you can see the coldness go in his eyes and that yeah. moral compass just totally start to spinning, you know, there when when the when these opportunities when he has to go into this mode of, of directing something in the direct you know, pushing something pushing in the direction something in he direction, needs it yeah. to go. Uh, and he's and he's really ruthless about it. There are points yeah. at which he knows damn good and well that what he's doing is 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 detrimental to his very good friend's Health, mm-hmm. And he's still doing it, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's wonderful. I think there, there. I mean, if you're right, Jekyll and Hyde, but I think there are two Jekyll and Hyde yeah, characters in I, the film. Oh, I totally. I, that's I hadn't thought of that. That I think you're totally right. And and but this is the weird. This is the question though that I I had to ask myself, and it never occurred to me before. But isn't it odd that Universal never made a Jekyll and Hyde film? Oh wow, did they not? Well, here's the thing. They technically they sort of did. That they did in 19. 19- 13, after they'd only been in existence like one year, they made a 1913 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which they okay. then, then re-released in 1927. But in terms of when the whole monster boom started, you know, yeah, when Dracula, yeah. isn't it weird that through that whole stretch, because Paramount made two of them, I think. Let's see, I think. Well, there's, got, the, there's the classic silent film, which I still think is one of the best Which versions. is fantastic. Yeah. And then they remade it again. They did it in 1941, the Spencer Tracy version. No, I'm sorry, that was MGM. Uh, that Paramount, was MGM. Paramount, Paramount did the, uh, the one with, uh, also did the, uh, the 1930 uh, 31 version or 32 version with um, uh, Frederick March. Uh, that was that oh, was yeah. Paramount. Yeah, so yeah, yes, yeah. and MGM did the Spencer Tracy. But 
I just, I, it never occurred to me before. I thought, boy, isn't it odd that, that Universal and all that time they were churning out the classic monsters never did well, a Jekyll maybe, and Hyde. Maybe so. you've answered your own question as to why they did not. Maybe because they just, it was being... Yeah, it's already been saturated. done. So, mm-hmm. I mean, at that time, they were mining... I mean, in the mid-30s, mm-hmm. before you know, before the uh, the kind of hiccup there in 1934, mm-hmm. 35, mm-hmm. Um, you had... Uh, you had them really heavily mining Poe with, you know, Mers and the Remorgue mm. and the Black Cat and the Raven, yeah. even if it was just stealing the titles for, yeah. for name recognition. That's the that's the direction in which they were going. I mean, because the first two films were adaptations of, well, you know, Dracula was an adaptation of a, of a, a very popular stage play. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein was them quickly casting about and going, well, there's this, you know, there's this yeah. classic novel. We can, we can use that and we can do that. And then... Um, yeah, I think you may have answered your own question. Well, if, the if fact others that had the, already done yeah, it, and the fact that the uh, version with uh, Frederick March had, had, I think, believe was I even I was Oscar nominated as well. I think I believe he won for the didn't he? I believe March. I think or was at least um, nominated as I think, actor. I think uh, Barrymore. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Frederick March got his first Academy Award. For the 1931 version of Jekyll and Hyde, and so, I think yeah. uh, actually I think wasn't he the I think he may be the last actor to win an Oscar for a horror film role um, until Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs I think maybe I think that's the you, you may be right I don't know but that sounds that sounds as far as actually accurate, winning you know. the Oscar for I think maybe he was yeah I know there were nominations yeah but, but I you know. think that may be I think that maybe that biggest stretch I believe before before another actor won for horror, for horror but maybe the fact that that Frederick Mark had, March had pulled that off maybe it was just such a high profile film maybe yeah maybe Universal just didn't feel like mining that same uh yeah, and I don't know the his, I don't know the history of possible re-releases of that film across the 1930s, yeah. where you know, yeah. that that studio may have been pulling that thing back into theaters on a regular basis, and it's like, well, re- really, do we want to compete with something that's you know making that much money yeah. and taking that much? You know, we're not gonna, we're not really gonna get a lot of, of people showing mm-hmm. up for our version unless we like pull out pull some mm-hmm. major casting stunt with some other big big name that's willing to do it again. It is tantalizing to just think like what you know what what would Rathbone have done. With that, or what a Karloff would have done. Oh, with that. I agree. that would have been fun to have seen what some of those actors would have done with that with that role. Man, now now that you've said that, mm-hmm. boy, a version of Jekyll and Hyde with Rathbone as yeah. Jekyll that would be yeah. Sometime in the '30s or the '40s, yeah. any time in those oh, yeah. two decades, that yeah. would have been that would have been yeah, nice. Cool. Uh, that could have been really sweet. Yeah. But anyway. Now, of course, when I say that Universal never made an a, 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 a Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde film, of course. I, yes, I do realize they made Abbott and Costello meet Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. So, yeah, oh, that <laughs> so, was years later. Yes, I know, years I know, but I, but you know, if I didn't mention that, you, you know, you guys would trash me. I know, I know, you'd be all over that. You'd be all over that. <laughs> I, you know, they just might. You're right. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, final assessment: Black Friday or Friday the Thirteenth, which yeah. is kind of kind of what I want to call it. <clears throat> I know. <laughs> um, I. I I was resistant to going back and watching it mm. for various and sundry reasons. I'm glad to see that my memory of it was tainted by my disappointment in mm. the change in casting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still a good film. Could mm-hmm. have been. I think it might have been even better if certain things had happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm pretty happy with the movie overall. I'm, I'm I'm really thrilled that I went back and watched it. I'm glad this series of podcasts is kind of pushing us into yeah. uh, watching these movies again for the first time in years. I certainly enjoy watching it again. I mean, it's, you know, it's a brisk 70 minutes, you know, it's, yeah. it's pacing's pretty good. It certainly stays interesting. Wondering where the plot's going to go. Uh, said, I think the cast is good in it. Um, and, uh, there, you know, there's some bits of good dialogue. There's some bits that are clunky, you know, but, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I did enjoy watching it again. I don't, 
I doubt I'll, I don't see myself revisiting it at any point. Yeah. You know, I mean, you never know. I mean, I, I could sit down, I could make my way through it again and enjoy it. But just the fact that I, I don't see myself returning to it, you know, I, I kind of lean towards just giving it a five, you know, but it's a, but it's a, it's a friendly five, you know, it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's like, Hey, this is not a bad film, you know, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, I, I think and it is I was, better. I agree. It is better than I remembered it. That's just it. I think that because it was better than my memory mm-hmm. was telling me that it was, mm-hmm. I ended up giving it a six out of yeah. 10. So mm-hmm. six, six out of 10, five out of 10. Yeah. We're in the, yeah, yeah. I see. I can, I could argue either side of that fence. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, um, an enjoyable revisit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess what we'll do now is we'll take a quick break, come back. We've got a piece of email and we will talk about the next, 1940s universal horror film that we will discuss here on the podcast. Hey, movie nerds! This is Bobby Hazard here, along with uh, the Colonel. And we're here to tell you about the Spring Break Forever Podcast Network. See, we got this one podcast where we talk about movies you can watch for free on the internet called No Pants Sunday. We also have my own personal podcast called I Hate Music. And we also talk about uh, music and other stuff on No Pants Sunday that involve that No Pants lifestyle. <laughs> and we also have another podcast about Alice Cooper that I host with a bunch of people called Coopercast. And in the future, we're going to have Beat on the Cast, which is a Ramones podcast. Will there be a podcast about an Alice Cooper movie to tie us all together? I don't know. Tune in to find out. Spring Break Forever Podcast Network. Yes, uh, we're on iTunes. iTunes. Stitcher. Uh, yes, yeah, Stitcher. Ah. <laughs> that thing. And wherever else we'll mirror our RSS feed. Suckers. And we also have a Tumblr page, springbreakforeverpodcast.tumblr.com. Check it out and enjoy the rest of the bloody pit. back we've actually got a piece of email here that actually addresses a number of things a number of shows that uh, troy and i do not just uh, the the 1940 stuff but several things but he also this writer also talks about a number of the other uh threads going on in the bloody pit feed uh so i'm just going to read the whole thing out and we'll comment as we go but this is from uh john uh, and he's definitely British because his email address ends in uh, UK, so you can't hide. We know, we know that you're in, in the this UK. sort of kind in the world you are. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we know what island nation you reside in, sir. <laughs> and I like the fact that he's, uh, uh, I've now graduated from being uh, and the gang to et al. now. And it says, hello, Rod, et al. So I'm, uh, well, I mean, he, he's, 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 <laughs> it's not just you. Don't feel completely insulted. That's all right. So it says, hello, Rod. And uh, I guess he's talking about other people. No. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Rod et al. Just dropping you a quick line after having a binge session through your last few podcasts. It was nice to hear you and Troy get back to some Nashy film talk. I know you're getting, I know they're getting thin on the ground now. With that said, I wondered if you were considering a Beyond Nashy on Eugenio Martin's Candle for the Devil. I'd be interested in your opinions on it, and with Blanca Estrada and Vic Winter in the cast, and a script by Martin and the mysterious Antonio Foss, it certainly has enough Nashy links. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes, very much so. Definitely. We definitely plan to do Candle for the Devil. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I expect probably before long. Yeah. Uh, yes. This year, most assuredly, mm-hmm. expect Candle for the Devil to be on the agenda for Beyond Nashy episode. It's one of the biggies that we've not played with, and mm-hmm. uh, boy, mm-hmm. we going to do it. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Also, we need to eventually do some Jose Larraz. Yeah, we do. We so, do. yeah. Uh, he says, uh, back to John's email, he says, over to the bloody pit. Uh, first, kudos for managing an entire podcast on Rollerball without a single mention of the awful remake. I know it's amazing because you love that so much. That. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> uh, uh, John, that is um, that was not by design. I actually had uh, several notes about the remake because the remake is absolutely freaking hideous. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we were recording that night, when uh, when Randy and I were recording that night, uh, we um, it wasn't a question of running out of time. It was a question of uh, once or twice having to double back and talk about things that we'd skipped over because we'd gone off on little side roads. Uh, and, and even saying that, there was at least one set one subject or two that we didn't discuss about the film Rollerball. But at a certain point, I just I just decided, you know, that damn remake's a piece of garbage. I'm not even going to bother talking about it. It's just so bad. So, that, thank you for your compliments. Uh, I was going to talk about it because I felt like it would be wrong to not mention it, and then I felt like it would be wrong to mention it, and that's the way it came out. Okay, back to his email. He says, uh, Looking forward to more of your coverage on the 40s Universal films. As you both said, they are very often very, neg- uh, very often neglected, and it's nice to hear them get some love. Uh, well, then you've enjoyed this episode, yes, I hope. Yes, yes. I have to take Stephen's side, that would be Stephen Sullivan's side, on the Doctor Who films. Uh, as a child, I always preferred the second Dalek film, and upon revisiting them, I am of the same opinion. I think the stage-bound nature of the first one brings it down a bit compared to the location work in the second, and I love that spaceship. Well, now I agree with you. The spaceship in the second mm-hmm, film is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. But... There's just something about that first one that feels more, as I said in the podcast, mm. just feels more like Doctor Who to me. Um, I like both films, but I will say that um, that second movie needs more Doctor Who, and I know the reason why, you know, I know Peter Cushing got ill, and that's one of the reasons why they kind of had to write around his character, but it does take it down a peg for me. But yeah, the spacecraft and a lot of those match, those match shots in that second Doctor Who film with Cushing, it's just, those are some, those are some great stuff. That's, I love that stuff. But uh, you know, it, it seems like Stephen Sullivan and you, John, are on uh, on kind of the majority opinion there. That most people seem to think the second of the the second Doctor Who film is better than the first. So, I once again am in the minority. <laughs> uh, he says uh, your ongoing series on Antonio Margheriti has given me a greater appreciation of his talents, with or without an invisible chimp. Yes, without <laughs> definitely always without an invisible chimp. <laughs> God, you know, Hudson's going to hear this now, right? I know. (laughs) And he says, and now I really want that uh, Naked You Die soundtrack. Yes, the soundtrack for Naked You Die, I was glad to be able to to filter some of that into that show because some of that music is pretty damn bouncy and fun. Uh, He says, finally, your podcast on At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul was truly exceptional. You managed to cover the film brilliantly, and your discussion on the themes within within it was outstanding. Hope you continue to cover some of his other films, particularly Awakening of the Beast, which is all sorts of crazy in the most brilliant way. Sorry if I've gone on for a bit, but you've given me a lot to think about. Keep up the great work. Yours, John. Well, good news on two accounts. Uh, Court and I definitely intend to do 
the uh, second and third Coffin Joe films. And uh, actually, we've been lobbied by uh, a few people now to uh, not just do the Coffin Joe films, but to maybe kind of go through chronologically and include Awakening of the Beast and uh, maybe even a couple of others. I'm looking at you, Finnis Hominy. Um, <laughs> so it's possible uh, that we might do uh, more than just the three main Coffin Joe films. Yeah. Oh, um, God, yeah. When you start getting stuff like Strange World of Coffin Joe and uh, yeah. that stuff's just awesome. Or actually, the Bloody Exorcism of Coffin <sighs> Joe. Oh, my, or, or, that, or that most recent one he did. That's a blast. Man. Oh, no, no. Like, Embodiment of Evil. Oh, would be the, of that's the, oh, that's yes, the third exactly, one. Yeah. That's the third official Coffin Joe oh, okay, film. okay. And we right, were sure, always, we yeah. always going to do oh, Embodiment a, of Evil. That's a, that's a blast. Yeah, Embodiment of Evil is just such a wonderful movie that we we're almost, I mean, not that not that we want to slight the first two Coffin oh, Joe yeah, films, no, but, but we're almost like using the first two films as like a run-up to just mm-hmm. headlong plunge into Embodiment of Evil. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Cord and I have already discussed this, and as a matter of fact, just recently discussed the fact that, you know, we might not just do the three Coffin Joe films. We might stretch mm-hmm. out and do uh, more than just that because... We really enjoyed digging into the the first one, and it was I think it was both cathartic for both of us, and uh, it allowed us to kind of stretch some podcasting muscles that we don't get to stretch very often. We got to get a little personal in an odd way about uh, the way some of the themes affect us and how they kind of intertwine with our way of looking at life. And so, yeah, look for more uh, Coffin Joe from Court and I. That is going to happen. You can you can you can take that to the bank. Um, so thank you, John, for the email. And thank you for the kind words about the podcast. Uh, I know that uh, a show like The Bloody Pit is incredibly eclectic. We bounce from subject to subject. You never know what one episode is going to be. We're, we're covering, uh, you know, Antonio Margariti films, which could be just about anything in the world. We're covering Godzilla movies. We're covering uh, Doctor Who movies from the 60s. We're covering, uh, you know, an occasional black exploitation film, 1970s science fiction, and I know that in a way it's kind of all over the place. And in that respect, I think that we kind of take a little bit from the the classic B movie cast podcast, mm-hmm. which is that the whole idea was that they're just essentially you're, you can count on it being some kind of cult movie, hopefully mm-hmm. interesting, mm-hmm. and we're just trying to bring our own perspectives and something interesting about the picture to you. Uh, and if you've not seen it. Hopefully we entice you to see it. If you have seen it, maybe we bring some insight to it that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And that's what we're aiming for here. So I'm well aware that some some subjects that we cover <laughs> on this show aren't going to be to everyone's taste. And I know sure. that, uh, well, like when we started talking about doing the 1940s Universal Horror Films, um, that's kind of a big departure for us in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, it I is. mean, it's yeah. it's not the standard for what we've done. I mean, you know, you go from uh, you know covering Lucio Fulci's The Beyond to covering The Invisible Man Returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're both horror films, but mm-hmm. they're it's you basically know no blood on the bloody pit is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no blood, bloody, no blood, bloody pit, <laughs> or something like that. But it, it, it bloodless it, pit. I, yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, I know that I enjoy, I wouldn't be covering these films if I didn't enjoy them, and that's and that's part of it, but. I do know that uh, my tastes are unique and possibly troublesome to some <laughs> to some <laughs> listeners. Uh, so before we leave, I should say that um, it won't be like the next episode, but uh, the next episode that Troy and I sit down for the Bloody Pit will be our next 1940s Universal horror film, which will be we're still in 1940. Still in 1940. We're in it's April 12th of 1940, so mm. we haven't even made it. We haven't even made it to the summer no. <laughs> of 1940 so far. <laughs> Uh, But the next one is going to be The House of the Seven Gables.
And uh, the beauty of that is that, uh, I'll be honest, I have not seen this movie in 25 years, something like that. Long time for me, too. But I'm uh, looking forward to, to seeing it again. Oh, I am, too. I am, too. Uh, it, we, we're, we're back with director Joe May from mm-hmm. uh, uh, The Invisible Man Returns and a lot of the same cast. Uh, but we also have uh, George Sanders, as well as, of course, uh, Vincent Price and Dick Ferran and Nan Gray and Alan Napier. And it, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this because mm-hmm. this movie, it has been so long since I've seen this movie. I think that the, I, I last saw it back when uh, back when AMC showed uncut oh. classic movies. Oh boy, that is that's an ancient history. Yeah. Time ago. yeah. So uh, that's how long it's been. So I can't even remember details of this movie. Mm-hmm. That's how faded it is in my mind. So. The next time Troy and I do a bloody pit, we'll be covering the House of Seven Gables from 1940. Um, kind of exciting, kind yeah, of weird. We get to talk about Vincent Price again. Yeah, yeah. But to be honest, I'm almost as excited to talk about George Sanders. Yeah, what yeah. a career that guy had. Oh, I know. Yeah. Interesting, interesting man and interesting, mm. interesting actor. I like mm. watching that stuff. So, thank you very much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember that you can visit us over on the Facebook page for the Bloody Pit or as was talked about earlier in the email, uh, there's always uh, you can always contact us over on the, the Nashi Cast Facebook page as well. Uh, the email for this podcast is thebloodypit, all one word, at gmail.com. I don't know why I still say that. That's It's, it's like I'm thinking it's like still 2008 and people <laughs> haven't doped out how email addresses work. Uh, thebloodypit at gmail.com. <laughs> if you have any comments or, or any suggestions for future shows, let us know because we can be uh, we can be influenced to 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 go in certain directions if people are curious right. and on, on and want us to do certain things. Um, thank you for downloading and listening. Thank you for uh, indulging us in this trip down ni- the <laughs> through just the one year of 1940 so <laughs> far. Uh, keep your ears peeled. Like I say, we've got future uh, future uh, podcasts coming up about uh, Zardoz and some more Antonio Margariti stuff. And Lord only knows because people now pitch me story they pitch me ideas for podcasts, and I kind of get excited about that. So once again, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Thank you very much for listening.
canon now belongs to the history of crime, past tense.